But I ask you to take your Bibles this evening and uh, to turn with me to John's Gospel, uh, John chapter 2. And we're going to read from verses 1 to 11 uh, of John chapter 2, uh, that fairly well-known passage. I'm sure if you've been in church for any amount of time, uh, you will know uh, this account of the wedding at Cana and Jesus turning water into wine. And so let's read together this evening, John chapter 2 and from verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Well, this is God's word. Let's just commit our time to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do uh, thank you for this opportunity again at the end of the day to come together around your word and to particularly come in this new evening series to consider this topic of signs and wonders and particularly to focus on these seven signs that John records for us in his gospel. Lord, as we come to your word this evening, we know that each of us here comes from different backgrounds, bringing with us perhaps different questions, different doubts, different concerns. And we ask that as we consider this portion this evening, that you would meet us where we are at. That no matter who we are this evening, no matter what our understanding of the miracles in Scripture may have been up to this point, no matter what we think about the signs that Jesus performed, we pray that as we look at your word this evening, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would accomplish in us what you intended and purposed when John recorded these signs uh, in his gospel. And so we ask that you would come and have your way amongst us this evening, we pray. Soften our hearts, prepare the soil of our hearts to receive your word, for we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it is so good to, to be with you this evening and to start our new series called Signs and Wonders. Um, when Grant asked earlier if there are uh, any visitors, 
No one put up their hands. Now, that's a problem. Um, as elders, when we started our evening service, we said that one of the purposes for our evening service would be evangelism uh, and then edification. So for those who are believers, and I assume that's most of you here this evening who came this morning, who've come again, the goal is that we would be edified as Christians in our love for the Lord, our knowledge of Him. But we also want to use our evening services to invite uh, unbelievers to invite friends, uh, and so that's up to you. Uh, we're not going to be able to use the evening services for an evangelism purpose unless we invite people with us to church. So can I ask you to pray about that? Pray about it as you go back to school, as you go to varsity, as you go to work, as you interact with your friends. Uh, why not invite them along to, to join us on, on a Sunday night? And as I've asked you to do that, you might be wondering, well, why on earth should you be interested in a sermon series uh, over the next seven or eight weeks on this topic of signs and wonders? And why would it be something that you would in, uh, want to invite someone else to come and listen to? And there may be some here this evening. Perhaps you know your Bible fairly well. Um, you know that God did great signs and wonders. Uh, for example, against Pharaoh and the land of Egypt in the book of Exodus as God delivered his people out of slavery uh, all those years ago. But as you think about those signs and wonders, you, you think about plagues of frogs and uh, gnats and darkness and turning water into blood, and your gut response is, well, that's all so Old Testament. After all, people back then were rather primitive and, and superstitious in their thinking. Surely there is no place in the 21st century, in our modern world, in our modern thinking for such things. Perhaps if you're honest this evening, you're a skeptic. You believe that science and evolution not only have the answer for everything we see in the world around us, but you believe that the miracles described in the Bible are either fictitious or at least can be explained away through various logical processes of nature. Then for others of you that here this evening, you might be on the opposite extreme where you are convinced that God is alive and he is well and he continues to be the God of the miraculous today. And so you are mesmerized by signs and wonders. Uh, you read every report of a supernatural miracle with, with great excitement you love the stories of people who apparently died and went to heaven and then came back and wrote a book. And you believe wholeheartedly that the, the miracles that we read of in the Bible are meant to be part of our normal experience as Christians today. And then perhaps for, for many others here this evening, you would place yourself somewhere on a spectrum uh, between these two extremes. You, you certainly believe that the, the miracles in the Bible are true, that they served a specific purpose of God at that point in history. But if you're honest, you really don't see the place for the miraculous today. Yes, you remain open to God still doing miracles today, and yet you are somewhat skeptical of any modern claims or reports of, of signs and wonders. And you are really not sure if what we read about these miracles in the Bible, if they are meant to play any significant role in our lives as Christians today. So 
at the outset this evening, whichever group you find yourself in or wherever you find yourself on that spectrum, we're glad that you're here uh, because this series is for you. You see, what we plan to do over the next seven or eight weeks is to specifically look at the miracles of Jesus as recorded for us in John's gospel in order to understand, firstly, the purpose of the miracles that Jesus performed. Then we want to see what each miracle teaches us primarily about Jesus and then finally what we are meant to learn uh, from these miracles as we seek to then live as Christians in our world. And so you'll see that the, the subtitle to the series is Reasons to Believe. And, and this will set the tone for the whole series, for all that we're going to be considering over the next uh, two months. So if you are a, a skeptic here tonight, the purpose of this series is to give you the answers that you need to deal with your doubts and your questions, to give you the reasons that you need to believe in Jesus as the Son of God, and to believe in Jesus as the Savior of the world, uh, but not just any Savior, but as your very own personal Savior. If you're on the other extreme this evening where you see a miracle behind every bush, uh, the purpose of this series is also to, to give you the reasons that you need to believe that Jesus is the Christ that he's the promised Messiah of God, and that by believing in him, you will be able to discern all the false Christs which exist in this world. Jesus himself warned in Matthew 24, 24, and we read that again in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that false Christs will come and they will perform great signs and wonders in order to deceive and lead astray the people of God. And then for everyone else in between those two extremes who, who do believe in Jesus Christ but who are not quite sure uh, what the purpose and the place of miracles is, how we are to understand them in our world today, the purpose of this series is also to show you that by believing in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, you might have life in his name. Not just eternal life, but life in this world, which is lived out boldly in the name of the one who is himself the greatest of all signs and wonders of God. Now, maybe you think that I'm trying to oversell the, the purpose and the goal um, of this series tonight. So please turn ahead in your Bibles to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, as John draws his gospel to a close let me show you that our purpose in this series is simply to be faithful to John's purpose in writing his gospel. So John chapter 20, right at the end of John, after having recorded these seven miraculous signs of Jesus throughout his earthly ministry, look at what John says in verse 30, John 20 verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So there before you in John 20, 30, you see the purpose for John's gospel. 
And there before you is the purpose for this sermon series as we consider these seven miraculous signs of Jesus. Now, how many more signs and wonders did Jesus perform? We'll just turn over the page to the very last verse of John's gospel. John chapter 21, verse 25. John says, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So amazingly, John tells us that Jesus did so many great works, all of them truly supernatural in the the truest sense of the word because every one of Jesus' works was performed by the Son of God himself. That John says all the books in the world could not exhaust our examination of all that Jesus did. But going back to chapter 20, verse 30, these seven signs that he chose to record, these seven under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit were written for you. They were written for me that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we may have life in his name. And so with that as an introduction, let's spend the rest of our time tonight to consider the first of these signs which John recorded for us. And we find that in John chapter two, verse one to 11, that passage that we've just read together. So let's turn back there and keep that open before you. And and as we work our way through through this account, let's keep in mind John 20, verse 30, that this specific miracle of Jesus turning water into wine, this was handpicked by John out of this multitude of things that Jesus did as a sign, a sign to point you and to point me to Jesus as the Messiah so that we might believe in him and have life in him. And so in the first place this evening, As we look at verses one to three, we have an embarrassing dilemma. Now, I don't need to tell you today that that weddings are a big deal, but in those days, weddings were the ultimate deal. This was the, the biggest celebration of any village in Israel, and weddings back in this time usually lasted a whole week. Weddings were not just a a celebration of the couple's marriage with a bit of free food. It was a community celebration. Weddings were a, a celebration of family and friends and the whole community coming together with joy and feasting as a man and a woman formed a new family unit. The health and the, the happiness of, of God's world is built on the health and the foundation of a happy marriage, of a family unit. And so as this couple came together in marriage, the whole community was part of this great celebration. And so what we have recorded in verses one to three is an incredible social blunder. At some point during the festivities of this wedding in Cana, they ran out of wine. 
Now, Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited, and it seems from the text that Mary was most likely involved in the organization and the catering of this wedding, because she seems to be one of the first to learn of this embarrassing dilemma. The wine is finished. Now, obviously, this blunder would reflect very poorly on the bridegroom. It would reflect poorly on his family. It would turn this wonderful community celebration into one of embarrassment and public scorn. And so this leads us on to an awkward exchange in verses 4 and 5. We read in verse 3 that when the wine ran out, Mary comes to Jesus and she says, they have no wine. And then we read in verse 4 of Jesus' rather strange response. Woman, what does this have to do with me? That's what the ESV says. The NIV says, woman, why do you involve me? The CSB says, woman, what has this concern of yours got to do with me? Now, firstly, we need to understand that Jesus' addressing Mary as woman here um, is not a sign of disrespect, But it was also not the usual way, the familial way in which a a son would refer to his mother. I think the closest our our modern English language would be madam or or ma'am or lady. Kind of formal, respectful, but certainly not what we would call our mothers. Now what we have recorded here is a very crucial shift that was necessary in the relationship of Jesus to his mother Mary. You see, up to this point, Jesus had been the perfect son. He had honored his mother in every way as the law of God required, but the point had come when Mary needed to no longer see Jesus as her son, but she now needed to see him as her Lord. We must remember that ever since the conception of Jesus, Mary had been anticipating the words of the angel Gabriel. In Luke chapter 1, we read, And behold, you will conceive in your womb, and you'll bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, the throne that we heard about this morning. And he will reign over the house of Jacob, and of his kingdom there will be no end. We are told in Luke chapter 2 verse 19 that Mary treasured these things in her heart. So can you think about it as Jesus just grew up as a a normal boy, assisting his father Joseph in the family carpentry business as he did his chores around the house, as he went to school and, and synagogue, Mary must have at many times grown impatient for the day when the promises of God would be fulfilled. And so it seems that part of the rebuke of Jesus here in verse 4 was to remind Mary that his hour had not yet come. His time to be revealed was not according to Mary's schedule nor was it primarily to get Mary out of a catering blunder. No, Jesus' time was set by the Father, and his hour to come ultimately referred to his death and his resurrection. This is something which Mary and his disciples could not understand at this point. Now, something amazing seems to happen next. 
Mary does not respond as a normal mother would respond to a normal child who had spoken to her in this way. No, it seems that the the penny drops for Mary at this point, and she now responds as a servant would respond to a master. It seems from this narrative that Mary had a position of authority at this wedding. She had servants who listened to her, who would do her bidding, but now she realizes who the real master is, and so she instructs her servants in verse 5, do whatever he tells you to do. In other words, Jesus is in charge now. Listen to him. Don Carson says of this transformational exchange, Mary approaches Jesus as his mother and is reproached. But when she responds as a believer, her faith is honored. So that leads us on to see in the third place a shocking solution in verses 6 to 8. Now, now what happens next is, is miraculous, but it's, it's not so miraculous as it is theologically shocking. We read in verse 6 that there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast so they took it. Now what Jesus does here is deeply theological. And although it was done mostly in secret in the back rooms, unbeknown to the majority of the guests at the wedding, it was meant to convey a very important theological truth to his disciples. Jesus tells the servants to take these six large stone jars, usually used for this Jewish washings and purification rituals, and to just fill them with ordinary water. Then after filling them to the brim, Jesus simply instructs them to draw out some water and to take it to the master of ceremonies. And we know that when he tasted that cup, it was filled with the very best quality wine. Now, why do I say that this is so shocking? Well, you see, these jars were specially set apart under the Jewish ceremonial system for the washing of people before they could sit down at a meal. We read about this in Mark chapter 7, verse 3 and 4. And so while it certainly had a a practical purpose to clean your hands and your feet before reclining at the table, we are specifically told here that they were used for the Jewish rites of purification. Now we know that in the Old Testament, God gave very specific laws for the priests that they would offer sacrifices in the temple and it involved all kinds of ceremonial washings of the priests and their utensils. And and then when we come to the New Testament, we are told by the writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter nine, verse 10, that those sacrifices and those washings could never perfect the conscience of the worshiper. In other words, after all those washings of of Jewish purification, the person still remained guilty. They could never deal with the actual guilt of sin. They were simply outward regulations, the writer to the Hebrews says, imposed on the body as shadows, as pictures, until the reality who is Jesus would come. 
And so here in a shocking turn of events, Jesus instructs that these large stone purification jars be filled with water and then he turns the water into wine, the very symbol of his blood which would finally wash and cleanse us from all our guilt forever. What the water of purification could never do, Jesus turns into wine as a picture of what he will accomplish through his death on the cross, through the shedding of his blood, true purification, true forgiveness of sins. So it should come as no surprise then that on the night before the crucifixion, just before Jesus was betrayed, in the last supper with his disciples, what did Jesus do? He took the cup of wine and he said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And so Jesus' instruction was far from pragmatic. He didn't just look around for some random containers to use for this miracle. Instead, he was proclaiming to his disciples that a new era was about to dawn. Yes, his hour had not yet come, as he told Mary, but it was on the horizon. And soon, all the shadows of the old covenant, they would pass away, and they would be replaced by the reality, the heavenly reality of Jesus in their midst through his death and resurrection. But there's still more which Jesus was teaching his disciples and us through this first sign at Cana. And so we see next in the narrative an abundant outcome. What happens next is that the master of ceremonies tastes the cup which is brought to him. And I love the, the way the NIV puts this. He, he calls the bridegroom. He, he tastes this cup. He calls the bridegroom and he says to him, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheap wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. Now these six stone jars collectively held between 500 and 600 liters of water, which had now been turned into the very best, choicest wine. What an abundant outcome. We are talking here of the equivalent of about 800 bottles of the finest wine money can buy. You do the maths. The message Jesus was conveying in this act of abundance is to show how much better the new covenant is than the old the old ineffective shadows of, of Jewish purification washings had now been replaced with this abundant joy and celebration of new wine in Christ. The symbol here is clear in Mark chapter two, Jesus speaking about the old laws and the old rules and regulations says, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If you do that, the wine will burst the skins and the wine and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Jesus was making it clear in this miracle at Cana that a new era of his kingdom had dawned. There was no gradual morphing of the old covenant into the new 
a little bit of the old and a little bit of the new. No, this was a brand new era of grace and joy and salvation and abundance. One commentator puts it like this, from purified water of the Pharisees came the choice new wine of a whole new era. The time for ritual cleansing had passed. The time for celebration had begun. William Barclay put it like this. He said, Jesus has come to turn the imperfections of the law into the perfection of grace. And so this then brings us to the end of the narrative account of this first miracle, but not until John has made his final and I think his main point, which is a glorious sign in verse 11. John closes this account with these words in verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. Now the other gospel writers, this is very interesting, the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they describe the miracles of Jesus as mighty works or as miraculous powers. And those descriptions of the miracles all share the same Greek word, dunamis, which means power. It's the word from which we get in English our word dynamite. But John uses a very different word. He describes these miracles of Jesus as signs, semeon. We're going to be seeing throughout our series in the weeks ahead that these signs reveal God's glory or Christ's glory. Now this phrase in verse 11 manifested his glory. This sign, turning water into wine, John says was a sign that manifests Christ's glory. This should ring a bell. And I didn't know that Grant was going to read John 1 this evening, but he read John 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. And then just look at John chapter 1 verse 14. This Word who created all things, He became flesh. And he dwelt among us. And John says, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. As John recounts the, the miracle of Jesus turning water into wine, he tells us that this miracle was the first sign the first of seven signs that he's going to be telling us about which reveal the glory of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. I love how Bruce Milne summarizes this. He says, the possibility of these miraculous acts of power is implicit in the opening statement of the gospel. Through him, all things were made. We're dealing with the creator here in the person of Jesus. The all-creating word cannot be held ransom by the constraints of his own creation. And then he says, the modest water saw its God and blushed. So as we close tonight, you, you might be wondering why I entitled the sermon, The Bridegroom is in the House. And that is because in ancient culture, unlike in ours today, it's the bridegroom who got all the attention. 
He was the one who was waited for with great anticipation. He was the one who hosted the wedding festivities, and he was the one who provided the wine for the celebration. But as we've read our account in this wedding in Cana, we we realize that there are actually two bridegrooms here. The one is not even given a name. He seems clueless about his lack of provisions, and he didn't even realize just who it was who he had invited to his wedding. You see, although Jesus' hour had not yet come, this account of John is there to show us that the real bridegroom is in the house. The bridegroom whom Paul speaks about in Ephesians chapter 5, who is preparing us as the church for the great wedding banquet of the Lamb when he returns, the bridegroom who we're going to get to soon in Revelation chapter 19. The miracle at Cana is the first sign to tell us that Jesus is the ultimate bridegroom and he is in the house. He's made his dwelling among us. This Jesus is the one who introduces the new covenant in his blood. Where once for all our sins are cleansed, our guilt is gone. This Jesus is the one who washes us daily with his word. Who purifies us by his Holy Spirit. Who graciously provides for us in abundance and who gives us eternal life. Now also very interesting in this account, John tells us of two very different responses. The servants saw everything. They saw the water blush before the presence of its creator as it turned into wine. And they did nothing with this knowledge Maybe they marveled for a few minutes at the miracle, but that's where it stopped for them. They didn't say a word to their master or to the bridegroom. But the other group who aren't really mentioned in the narrative are the disciples. They were there too. They saw the exact same miracle, but they understood the sign to which it pointed they beheld the presence of God in the person of Jesus. And we are told at the end of verse 11, they believed in Jesus. For those who believe in Jesus, this first sign teaches us that the best is yet to come. Jesus came that we might have life and have it abundantly But this world is not our home. The best is yet to come. Let me close with a word from F.B. Mayer. The Lord Jesus is always giving something better. As the taste is being constantly refined, it is provided with more delicate and ravishing delights. That which you know of Jesus today is certainly better than that which you tasted when you first sat down at his table. And so it will ever be. The angels as his servants have orders to bring in and set before the heirs of glory things which no eye hath seen and man's heart has not conceived, but which are all prepared. The very best of earth below will be the simplest fare of heaven. But what will heaven's best be? 
If wine in the peasant's house is so luscious, what will it be, the new wine in the Father's kingdom? What may we not expect from the vintages of the celestial hills? What will it be to sit at the marriage supper of the Lamb, not as guests, but as the bride? Oh, hasten on, you slow-moving days. Be quick to depart, that we may taste that ravishment of bliss. But forever and ever, as fresh revelations break on our glad souls, we shall look up to the master of the feast and cry, Thou hast kept the best until now. Two groups of people saw the same miracle, but only one saw the sign. The servants witnessed the miracle and then just carried on with life. But the disciples saw the sign. They beheld the glory of God and they believed in Jesus. Which group are you in this evening? Let's close in a word of prayer. Hi, Heavenly Father, we, we thank you again this evening for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that as we've just considered this very first sign, this first miracle that Jesus performed, for the disciples that one sign was sufficient and they believed in Jesus. Lord, the evidence of your word says to us that our hearts are sometimes so stubborn, so caught up in the things of this world that perhaps some here need to come back for the second and the third but your word tells us that these seven signs are sufficient for us to believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and that by believing we might have life in his name. Lord, I pray that there would be some here tonight that for the very first time will look to Jesus as the Son of God and believe in him. And for those of us who already trust in you, Lord Jesus, we pray that our souls, our hearts will continue to be ravished to be filled with an understanding of your beauty and your perfections and all that we have in Christ. May you be pleased to accomplish your purposes in our hearts tonight. We ask this in Jesus' name.